God created man in his own image. We believe in the creation account. We believe that God created. If you want to call it Big Bang Theory, just know that God's the one that made the bang happen. God's the one that created. God's the one that spoke this world into existence. And he created man in his own image. And when he created him, it was male. Someone say male. Someone say female. Created he them. I want to speak about gender bender. I want to speak about the great gender bender debate, whether you want to call it that gender identity. Uh, but it is pretty much an onslaught of nonstop discussion and then debate and much heated debate in the cancel culture that we live in, that if you do not agree with it, then you are completely canceled, you're completely written off, you're a bigot, you're a racist, you're prejudiced, you're whatever. Uh, but it's very important that we as the church, we as Christians, don't fall prey to pleasing society and pleasing culture. Now, we're not trying to intentionally be enemies of culture. We're not trying to intentionally create warfare. But we have to love God more than we love anything else. The Bible says in the book of John twelve forty three, the mistake of the Pharisees is that they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. But the beginning of the Pharisees was that they loved God. That was the beginning of the Pharisees. They did not want to lose the temple again. And so they did everything they could to make sure that it was a holy people, a godly people. And they, they had boundaries, they had borders, they had guidelines. They started off with good intentions, but if you're not careful, eventually you'll get more consumed with the praise of people and pleasing people. And Jesus rebuked him. He said, they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Recently, I was asked, someone messaged me online, and uh, it was a student, had a list of questions for an interview for a class. And one thing they asked was, if living for God has ever been hard for me, and the next question is, why do I continue living for God? And, uh, you know, I answered your question, and I don't know the full intent behind it. I thought it was interesting for them to ask. But uh, ultimately, the longer I, I live for God, the more sense God and his word makes to me. There's things I didn't get when I was young. There's things I didn't understand when I was young. But the older I get and the longer I live and the more I see things this March, I'll be 38 years old. And God willing, I get to live to be in my 80s, and my 90s, if the Lord should tarry. But the longer I do live for the Lord, the more sense He makes to me. This world is spiraled out of control. It's become clear and more evident as to why God established principles of living in His Word. And why does this matter when we speak about gender and gender identity. Why not just let society, why not just let Christians, why not just let people do whatever they want? Why not just let them live and do what's right in their own eyes? Well, if you study history, whether it be within the Bible or outside of the Bible, you will find what a society left to themselves without morality leads to, and it is not a good result. So God's word, God's holiness, and God's church is under spiritual attack. It always has been. 
but it is in a magnified state because we live in a digified, if that's even a word, I just like to try to make things rhyme, but digitized, there we go, I think that's the word, a digitized state is where we are at, and so it's just nonstop mass production of deception and attack against anything that is moral, anything that is holy, anything that is Christian, and so... We have to figure out, do we capitulate or do we be like the early church and continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine? And you will find when the church was under the most intense heat and attack, when there was someone that stood for truth and righteousness, the church thrived. Yes, there were those that died, but overall the church thrived. The work of God excelled when people stood for truth. And so the church must draw lines. There are hundreds of branches of Christian religion. And the reality is pretty much most of Christianity was on the same page in regards to morality. For centuries it has been that way from the inception of the church in the book of Acts all the way uh, uh, to the 1800s and early 1900s. Much of the church and much of society reflected in agreement in some moral principles. Now, there's always been debauchery. There's always been perversion. There's always been sexual immorality. There's always been greed and hatred. But in terms of most things that would be moral or modest or common sense, such as gender identity, all branches of Christianity were synonymous in, in agreement. But the only real differences that seem to s- produce debate within the branches of Christianity boiled down, if you really wanted to boil it down, were to the new birth, salvation, and the deity of Jesus Christ. Other than that, there was pretty much an agreement, whether it be the subject of gambling, the subject of adultery, the subject of gender distinction, the subject of just basic morality according to the Scripture. But now, here we are in 2022 with even more Christian religion, more branches and sub-branches and sub-this and that, and it is all over the place. And what is interesting is the pendulum has swung the opposite direction, and a majority of Christianity is in agreement in the opposite direction. Their message of salvation has not changed. Their message of the deity of who Jesus hasn't changed. But there's other lines of distinctions that have changed. And they are in agreement swinging the same direction of the world. The church has loved the world and the things of the world so much. That the world has made its way into the church's way of thinking. The word plainly tells us to not love this world or the things that are in it. 1 John 2, 15 and 16. The apostle, the beloved one, the most gracious one, the one near and dear to Jesus said, love not the world, neither. If there's anybody that had a good definition of love, it would be John, the beloved. And he says, there's a good love, there's a bad love. And there's a love that we ought not to have. And that's the love of the world. The things that are in the world. And if any person loves this world, 
the love of the Father is not in him. It would be good for you to study out and figure out what is the love of the world because if I have that, whatever that is in me, then the love of God is not in me. All that is in the world, he begins to detail it and yet generalize it into these categories. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And lust is not confined to sexual desire. It is desire itself. And he says, there's desires your flesh has. There's desires your eyes have. There's a pride in this life. That's not of the Father. That is of the world. The modern day church has become so politically correct, it is no longer biblically correct. We cannot acquiesce. We cannot give in. We cannot cater to making everybody happy. There is just this reality. The two greatest communicators of truth in my estimation would be the Apostle Paul and Jesus Christ himself. And both of them spoke truth in love. And while speaking truth in love, it stoked and provoked hatred itself in opposition. If you are able to get everybody to agree with you, you are either a better teacher than the Apostle Paul and Jesus, or you're doing something different than the Apostle Paul and Jesus. I would say and argue it would be the latter part of that. You cannot make everybody happy because truth is decisive and divisive. Once you draw a line, you're on one or the other. You cannot ride that line. You cannot have it both ways. And so Genesis 1, 27, God created man in his own image. The image of God created he, him. Male, female, created he, them. Gender is a God idea. Gender identity was established by the Lord at creation before sin came in to distort gender identity. It was established by God in a perfect state. Matthew 19, 3 through 8, in case you think this is Old Testament fuddy-duddy, Jesus came along the way with a question about divorce, people putting away their wife, and Jesus says, have you not read? Don't you know what the word forever established says? At the beginning, God made male and female. There is no other gender of the 50, 60, 70, 100, however, and counting they put out there. The word declares it is broken down male and female. And for this cause shall a man leave father and father, no, leave father and mother. That's where you came from. You came from a father and mother. Whether you liked them or not, that is how you were produced by male and female. And if you ever want to continue that, you have to go to the opposite sex if you want to produce another person. And so he speaks to that. He says, they're no more twain. They are one. What God joins together, let no man put asunder. And they begin to say, well, we have documentation here. We have our critical way of thinking here, that there is a writing, there is a way, there is a provision that would afford and allow divorce. And Jesus says, look, it doesn't matter what you come up with, doesn't matter what you define, and doesn't matter what you deem permissible. You have that documentation because of the hardness of your hearts to be able to go the direction you're going. 
But from the beginning, the course of nature, it is not so. We can do anything we want as a church to try to create provisions for our justification of any moral, amoral behavior that we want. But that does not mean it was so from the beginning. And Jesus said, I want you to understand, you do whatever you want and define it however you want. This is the way it was from the beginning. Male, female, this is a relation between them. Husband, wife, no other way. Man interjects themselves far too often. And we think that we are so clever. We think that we are so smart. We are so wise. I believe we are at an ever-increasing, accelerated rate of fulfilling prophecy, such as 2 Timothy 3.7. We are ever learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. We are learning at an accelerated rate that is leading to moral decline, not coming to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Corinthians 1, 21, after the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. You cannot intellectualize your way into relationship with God. I'm not against intellect. I'm not against your wisdom and your education and scholarly whatever lifestyle. That is good. It has its place. But in the wisdom of God, he says, you're not going to find me by wisdom. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Because in verse 25, the foolishness of God, as much as people can get upset, aggravated, infuriated with gender identity and morality, purity, etc. The way of God is wiser than men. Call it foolish. Call it just old-fashioned, stubborn, uh, archaic belief system of some old way of life. That old way of life that you deem foolish is still wiser than man's wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than whatever you can come up with. Romans 1, 22 through 27. They profess themselves to be wise, but in that process they became fools. And they begin to change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image Like corruptible man. In the beginning created he, male, female, in the image of God. And since the fall of man, since sin began to descend upon humanity, they have done everything they can to alternate the image of an uncorruptible, incorruptible God to fit a corruptible mindset and a corruptible heart in a corruptible moral system. And in that, they became fools. Wherefore, God says, fine, I will allow you to pursue what you are after. The uncleanness, the lust of your own heart. And you can continue that method that way. And a lot of times, the reason why people want to create their own image, it is to justify their immoral behavior. He says, you just want to dishonor your bodies between yourselves. When you get to the core of it, the reason why they want to remove morality or defining it is so it can justify what is immoral in man. 
their bodies between themselves, changing the truth of God into a lie, and they worship and serve. There it is, the creature more than the creator. It's about me, not him. And for this cause, God gave them up to vile affections. See, when you begin in your quest, your conquest for sin, it will not be satisfied in the beginning stages. It's going to descend further. It's going to corrode further. And that attraction that you had for the opposite sex and nothing was withheld from you and you pursued that deviant behavior over time, it's not enough and it descends further until the point you go into vile affection. Women changing the natural, there's the nature element, use into that which is against nature, lesbianism. Likewise, also men leaving the nature, natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one towards another, men with men. God did not create Adam and Steve, God did not create man in man in the beginning. God created that which reproduces, that which can regenerate. There is no birth that way. And there is no new birth had Adam and Eve done it their way. They would have died and nothing ever would have happened. Yes, we know they sinned and they did things their way, but the only redemptive way was through the way God selected and that was procreation. That was birth. There is no new birth without birth after the garden sin. And so the Bible says they burned in their lust one towards another, men with men working that which is unseemly, receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which was meat. You know, funny, the same science so-called that led society astray from creation and ridiculed the church for rejecting science is getting a free pass as they turn their eyes from true science in regards to gender. The same argument they use to make the church look stupid in the creation account, they get a free pass and can turn a blind eye to true science in regards to gender. Because they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. You could dig up a thousand-year-old skeleton and simply... By examining that skeleton, looking at the pelvis, you can determine the gender of that person a thousand years ago. How dare you assume that gender? Bones are different. That's all there is to it. Those with common sense know there is a biological difference between men and women. But common sense no longer is at the helm of the ship. But that's not enough for there to be a biological or anatomical distinction. It's not enough. God knows the perverse nature of humanity and has set in place principles to protect distinction and sacredness of gender. Because man left to themselves with gender is going to ruin the course of it all. And so God says, I'm going to have some parameters around gender, such as marriage such as apparel, such as some natural elements that grow. He says, these things will help determine the course of what a man is, what a woman is, what gender is. And this matters to the Lord because it has everything to do with nature and his creative order. 
and you mess with creation, you're headed for destruction. Proverbs twenty two twenty eight. Remove not the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set. Don't touch that. Before you move it, you better figure out why it's there. It's there for a reason. It's there for a purpose. You can't just move it because you don't like it. And the moment you move that boundary, there is a dispute that begins to take place. This is talking about property lines back in the day. And if you move somebody's property line, you're about to fix to get into a fight. You're declaring war. You're, you're saying, I'm going to take this land from you. This I'm redefining land and parameters. You're creating a problem. Same thing in the kingdom. When you begin to try to move the ancient landmarks, you're, you're engaging in a spiritual battle that you are on the losing side when you move something God set and established. I love Ecclesiastes 10.8 in the New Living Translation. It says, when you dig a well, you might fall in. And when you demolish an old wall, you can be bitten by a snake. And before you think you can renovate the church and renovate doctrine and begin to change things, there's a snake that will bite you as you try to remodel the apostles' doctrine, as you try to remodel the way the church has been built up, as you try to remodel God's creative order. You be careful when we try as a church to think we're so wise, so clever, so smart, so user-friendly how to get more people here and to make them happy and not offended. We must be careful. The Lord declares in Levitical law, chapter 18, verse 2 through 5, then 19 through 30, he says, speak to the children of Israel, say to them, I am the Lord your God. And whatever's going on in the land, regardless of nation's popularity, their power, their influence, such as Egypt, you don't do what Egypt is doing. You don't do it just because you were raised in that culture. You're not going to live like the culture you were raised in. You're not going to do things when you go into a new culture just to fit into that culture. You were raised in Egypt, but you're not going to live like Egypt. And you're going to go into a new culture called Canaan. And that doesn't give permission for you to change morality either. I brought you and you're not to do what they do. Neither shall you walk in their ordinances. You don't do it just because it's the law. If the law contradicts God's law, you do not give in to that law. You shall do my judgments, my ordinances. Walk therein. I am the Lord your God. Ye shall therefore keep my statutes, my judgments, and if a man would do them, he will find himself living in them, because I am the Lord. Verse 19, thou shalt not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness. Society has no problem with immodesty. Society has nothing, no, uh, no guilt whatsoever in sexual conquest. But you're not going to do what the rest of the nations do. Verse 20 says, don't lie carnally with your neighbor's wife. There's open relationships, there's infidelity, but you don't do what the rest of society is doing. You are defiling yourself. Don't do, don't, don't do with your family as other families do. Don't raise your children the same way everyone else raises their children. They're giving their children to the God of this world. Letting their children pass through the fire of Molech. Don't profane the name of God, I am the Lord. Don't lie with mankind as with womankind. That is an abomination. What God strongly detests. 
Not only that, don't lie with any beast to defile yourself therewith. Neither shall a woman stand before a beast to lie there too. It is confusion. Defile not ye yourselves in any of these things, for in all these things the nations are defiled. The majority is doing it, but majority never equates to morality. These nations are defiled. And so I am casting out these nations because this is their activity. And the land is also defiled. Not just the people, but the people affect the land. And we've preached and we've talked about the land, the behavior of the people. There is an effect upon the land. And now the land is defiled. And so I visit the iniquity upon it. And the land itself vomits out her inhabitants. Because nature cannot tolerate that which is unnatural. It, it fights against it. And so keep my statutes, my judgments. Do not commit any of these abominations, neither any of your own, own nation, nor any stranger that sojourns among you. All these abominations have the men of the land done. The reason why God established those principles and these laws that are before this and forthcoming is because people were doing it. Just kind of like you read those wild laws, you know, don't, don't walk your go out past midnight feeding on ice cream cones from a vendor. And that's the law of the county. That law was put there because at some point somebody's wild goat was roaming the streets freely eating from an ice cream vendor illegally. As silly as some of these laws seem in the word of God, it's because somebody somewhere descended in their perversion and their pursuits. And God says, this is where it's going to lead to. This is where we draw the line. We do not do this. And so anyone that commits these things, these are abominations and cut off from among the people. So keep my ordinance. Commit not any of these abominable customs which were committed before you. Don't defile yourselves. I am the Lord your God. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 1 through 9. Now therefore hearken, O Israel, to the statutes of my judgments which I teach you. For to do them that you may live. There's a reason you do these. It's good for your health. It will help you to possess the promise, the land. That God has given you. Don't add to the word which I command you. And don't diminish. Don't remove from it either. These are the commands of the Lord. Your eyes have seen what the Lord. Uh, seen what the Lord did because of Baal Peor. For all the men that followed Baal Peor. The Lord thy God destroyed them. From among you. But ye did cleave unto the Lord your God. Are alive every one of you. This Everyone that obeyed God. Lived. I taught you my statutes. My judgments as the Lord. Uh, my God commanded me that you should go to the land, possess, whether you go to possess it. Keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom. This is your understanding in the sight of nations. Now, they'll call it stupid. They'll call it ridiculous. They'll call it cultish. They'll call it legalistic. But he says, this is your wisdom. This is your understanding in the sight of all nations. Which shall hear these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Basically, initially, people think it's bad. They'll talk smack about it. But if you are faithful to it over time, time will prove who was right. And they'll look back and be like, huh. Wow. Turned out pretty good for their family. Turned out pretty good for them. And they realize it was not some dictator behind all of the laws trying to control humanity, but it was a creator that knows nature 
and what works and what does not work. And all of a sudden, God gets the credit. God gets the glory. God gets the praise. And so the life we live as the church, this is our wisdom. This is our understanding from our great God, our great creator. And people can mock it, insult it, say what they want. They call it prejudice, bias, sexist, whatever they want to say about it. But this is our wisdom. This is our understanding from our great God, our great creator. And time, I believe, right now is proving clear than ever before that we've been on the right side of this all along. What nation is there so great? What church is there like this church that God is so nigh to them? The Lord our God is in all things that we call upon for. What nation is there so great that statutes, judgments, so righteous as all this law which I set before you this day? But you got to take heed to yourself. Keep your soul diligently. Because a church can get pretty smug and forget the things our eyes have seen and depart from thy heart all the days of your life. So what we must do is teach them to our sons and our sons' sons. Because we cannot continue what we do not communicate. It is why you may get aggravated, feel it's so basic, elementary, or redundant to talk about something that's so common sense to us as gender distinction. But stop talking about gender distinction because we just all have an understanding here. And never vocalize it and never speak about it from the pulpit. We cannot continue what we do not communicate. We must clearly define there is male There is female. There is a God who created and established it from the very beginning. And I thank God for the biological difference. But God did more than provide a biological anatomical difference between male and female. Because that's not enough for humanity. Because we see that playing out right now. God God doesn't want us to follow society's trends and definitions for morality or gender identity. So the Lord has provided these distinctions. As I mentioned, through marriage, through nature, and through apparel. Deuteronomy 22.5, the woman shall not wear that which pertains to a man. Neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. All that do so are an abomination to the Lord. God has strong emotions against people. That will try to redefine apparel and say this, this is only for a guy, this is only for a girl. But we're going to rewrite all of this and say, it doesn't matter what you wear. You do what you want to do. Do what's right in your own eyes. Don't let some religion, don't let some archaic book, don't let some, uh, you know, uh, spiritual leader begin to dictate to you what you should wear. But the church that truly believes the word of God is forever settled in heaven sees that the Bible clearly states there is a garment for men. There is a garment for women. Exodus 28, 42, make to the priest linen breeches. You might know the word as breeches, slacks to cover their nakedness. It's not just about gender identity. It's also about modesty from the loins, even unto the thighs they shall reach. So the argument begins to ensue as it has in the past hundred plus years of 
What is a man's apparel? What is a woman's apparel? What is cultural? What is permissible? It is round it round. It goes into the point where people don't want to discuss it because they don't want to uh, uh, stoke the flames of controversy and begin to get people upset or offended or hurt. But you got to be honest with yourself and look at the scripture and say, okay, when the word says something is an abomination to God, instead of just coming up with your theory, your opinion, or the way you feel about it, you should look into it. What is an abomination? How does God feel about it? Because our, our, our feelings ultimately do not matter. What God says is ultimately what matters. And abomination is the strongest emotional word out there put in Scripture to express the way God feels about something. God strongly despises and detests cross-dressing. Now, I don't know if that's even a word anymore. Now it's probably on a fluid dressing. You know, you wear whatever you want. No big deal. But the Bible says this is a moral issue to God. And some people say, well, that's Old Testament, so it doesn't matter anymore. That's all done away with. Well, there's some things you have to understand about the Old Testament. If you want to say everything from the Old Testament is done away with, then why do we find the apostles speaking and teaching the Ten Commandments? Why do we find Jesus speaking and teaching the Ten Commandments if they were done away with? The Ten Commandments still apply today. You know why? Because the moral nature of God has never changed. The ceremonial law has changed. The dietary law has changed. The, uh, the festive law has changed. The sacrificial law has changed. But God's moral law has never changed one bit. God has the established. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He was holy then. He is holy now. He, holy, he will be holy always. And from nature itself, God began from the beginning to establish some things. And if, if someone says, well, that's the only place in Scripture about a peril distinction between a man and woman. And so we have liberty to express ourselves in a peril any way we would like to today. Because that's only one Scripture in its Old Testament. Well, show me New Testament for having sexual relations with an animal that it's wrong. You can't. There's nothing in the New Testament that says you cannot have intimacy with an animal. But you know why we don't do that? There are a lot of reasons. As clear as that makes sense to us, there are people that do that. That's why the law was put in place, because that's how far we can descend into sin and perversion. And so, the reason why we don't do it is because that was a moral issue. It wasn't an Old Testament or New Testament issue. It was a moral issue. And it was an abomination to God then. And it's an abomination to God now. And it's going to be an abomination to God till time ceases to be. That does not change. So it is with cross-dressing. Uh, uh, that does not change with God. Now, people can argue and refute, you know, what, what is a man's apparel? What is a woman's apparel? And that is subject to culture. I do believe there is a universal sign that communicates the apparel of a man and of a woman that people don't fuss and cuss over, though it aggravates people to no end that wants to say there is no distinguished difference. And that is simply you just need to go to 
a, uh, a public place that has a public restroom. And on that public restroom, there is an image. Male and female. And that image helps to communicate. You could be in China. You can be in Vietnam. You can be in Africa. You can be wherever you want in the world and not speak the language. And I've been to different countries, and I did not know their language. But there, a good majority of the time, there is a restroom that has an image on there to communicate which one is male or female. Or you could even say gender inclusive. You know how they communicate that? There is still an image on that. Half skirt, half slack. To help you to know whether you're male or female, you can walk or if you want to try to claim you're both or whatever you are. It doesn't matter. It lets you know through that image of apparel between what is male and female, this is what is allowed through this door. It doesn't take rocket science. It doesn't take us trying to sit there and, 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 and figure out some deep, profound thought. It is the way it is declared in Scripture because it comes from nature. And there's still something in us today that lets us know there is a peril for a man. There is a peril for a woman. And so if I was to walk up to this pulpit and I was to wear a dress and begin to preach, you, would, you wouldn't even looked at my glasses today. You would have looked at my tutu. You would have looked at my skirt that I was wearing, my dress that I was wearing, and there would have been strong reaction to it. You know why? Because that pertains to a woman. Now, I know that's trying to be redefined right now, but you cannot shake it out of society. And they're trying so hard to do it. But it's clearly embedded that that pertains to a woman. So what should pastor wear in the pulpit? If a skirt does not pertain to a man, if a dress does not pertain to a man, what pertains to a man? Slacks. Breeches. And so that is what I wear to identify where I stand on gender identity. And that is the line that has been drawn in Scripture. And so if I can't wear a dress, I'm supposed to wear slacks in, a, in that apparel. If that a principle applies to me, it applies in the reverse as well. Because if slacks is that which pertains to a man, a woman ought not to wear that which pertains unto a man. Now, if you're here and you're, you're, you're a lady and you're in slacks, or if you're a man and you're in a dress... We're not here to rub your nose in, make you feel stupid, and attack you whatsoever. You have been raised in Egypt. You have lived in Canaan. We don't insult you. We don't mock you. We don't make fun of you. It's the culture in which all of us have been born into. So we don't think ourselves better than anyone else, superior than anyone else. It's the times in which we are living. But do we... Continue to do what Egypt does and continue to do what Canaan does? Or do we try to help bring clarity and definition in the most graceful, loving fashion and to communicate to people, look, there is a way that God has established to help 
keep us from spiraling out of control because right now everything is out of control and the world doesn't know what to do. They don't want to make a definitive statement because it would be them acknowledging they were wrong. 